Good evening. Can you hear me? Good evening. I have it on good authority that you're in for a treat this evening. Even though we're here to talk about the Civil War at sea, we know there's a lot more books to come. As Professor Emeritus of History at the United States Naval Academy, this evening's speaker is a leading Civil War and Naval historian. There are two items I must mention because the, the, there are so many credentials and titles of books and so on, but two that are recent, the Lincoln Prize in 2009 and the Abraham Lincoln Book Award in 2010. His credentials, awards, honors, and published works would be a volume unto itself with lots of appendices. Amidst all his studies, service in the U.S. Navy, duties as chairman of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, researching and teaching, Mr. Simmons found time to share his knowledge and passion for history by producing an array of books on a wide range, Civil War, uh, Battle of Midway, certain other decision at sea, five key battles, very, very good in the different time span of U.S. history. They are testament to a skillful translation and interpretation of historical events and data into meaningful, very crisp, and clear narratives. You wish this individual had been your history teacher. It would have opened up a whole new world. You are there in the midst of the action, including like in the Civil War at sea, it just puts you right in the middle of it. The first thing in December of 1862, 16-year-old Alva Hunter watched from shore and you're there, you're at the shore, you're watching these ships come in, you're seeing the new coming to change the old. Whichever book you are currently reading will be your favorite until the next one comes along. Finally, and I heard someone say that using that word gives people hope. So finally, without further ado, please welcome Craig L. Simmons. Well, thank you very much for that very generous introduction. This guy sounds really interesting. I can't wait. Um, it was suggested that uh, you would wish I were your history teacher. Well, for the next hour, I'm going to be. So look out, but no test at the end. Um, I've been asked to talk about uh, the Civil War Navy. And the title of the book that has recently come out uh, is The Civil War at Sea. Uh, and it's a very thin book, but a very crowded subject, and having only an hour to discuss it kind of puts us in a corner, but we'll see what we can do. The Civil War, of course, was not primarily a naval conflict. It was a land war. But the role played by naval forces, and on both sides, affected both its length and its trajectory, though probably not the outcome. Um, I have an hour, as I say, to provide kind of an overview of that war, and in particular, I want to address three aspects of that naval conflict. First, the Union blockade. Now, this is kind of a ho-hum subject, but I'll see if I can liven it up a little bit. 
Second, the Confederacy's response to that, which was to launch and maintain a number of commerce raiding vessels to attack Union merchant ships. And then finally, the Union Army-Navy effort to control the Western River system. Those three things, I think, uh, are the key campaigns of the Naval War. Well, the first point I want to make, even before I jump into that, is that the Civil War took place at a time of tremendous technological change. A lot of us in this audience, and I'm looking around at kind of the age group here, we recognize technological change. You know, when these teenagers walking around texting one another all the time, and I, at least, responding to that by saying, what are they doing? Um, in the same way the generation of the Civil War confronted technological changes that redefined the world in which they lived, it also changed the way they fought their wars. And one of the things that makes the Civil War so interesting to us is that it sits on an historical pivot point that marks the differentiation between what let's call old-fashioned war, the wars of Sir Walter Scott, for example, and what we might call modern war, the wars of Ernie Pyle. Uh, it meant that the Civil War era included, for the first time, steam-powered warships, uh, including many that were driven by a screw propeller, a novelty at the time, some that had iron armor. They included ships with rifled guns that fired explosive shells, all of that new within just the previous decade. They included both the ironclad monitor and the submarine Hunley. And all of that created a new template of war for those who fought in it. Officers who'd spent 20 or 30 years uh, in what was called the old Navy, the sailing Navy, uh, had to relearn lessons about what naval ordnance could do, about the relative power of ships versus forts, for example, about the threat of things like underwater mines, which the federal sailors called infernal machines, rightly so. They also had to deal with a dramatically changed lower deck. For those who are not naval history fans, a lower deck is a sort of generalized reference to the enlisted force. Uh, the several thousand old tars who manned America's sailing navy in the years before 1860 were now augmented by 100,000 more new volunteers. Some of them are farm boys and mechanics. Others were so-called contrabands, the term used at the time to define those who had escaped from bonded servitude and offered their service to the United States Navy. These new circumstances required senior officers to adjust, and as you would expect, some were more successful at that than others. Now, by far the biggest assignment the United States Navy had to undertake in this new technological environment was the establishment and maintenance of a blockade of the entire southern coast. It was, in fact, the largest U.S. Navy enterprise in American history until the Second World War. It absorbed more ships and more men than all the rest of the Navy's operations combined, and by 1865 it included more men and more ships than had served in all of America's previous wars combined. Now, the three big questions to ask about this huge undertaking are, one, was it legal? Two, did it work? And three, was it worth it? 
And quite frankly, there are no easy answers to any of those questions. Lincoln announced the blockade, and I start with a photograph of Lincoln. This is my favorite picture of him. It was taken in November of 1863, about a week before he gave his most famous public speech at Gettysburg. But he announced the blockade on April 19, 1861, just five days after the first shot was fired at Fort Sumter, really his first strategic decision in this war. In the early days and weeks of his presidency, Lincoln faced completely unprecedented questions and issues. We see him now, and some of you have, I'm sure, in the new movie, uh, the eponymous Lincoln, struggling with the question of how to gain ratification for the 13th Amendment. And he seems almost omniscient in that role. But this was late in the war when uh, he'd figured a lot of things out. Early on, he was kind of making it up as he went along. Lincoln was not, however, completely adrift, to use a nautical metaphor, in dealing with the legal ramifications of blockade. He was, after all, a lawyer. He knew that a blockade was an act of war and that it was likely to be perceived as a kind of recognition of the Confederacy. I mean, you can't blockade a country that doesn't exist. And that conflicted with Lincoln's insistence that secession was not legal, that the South had not left the Union. It was still part of the country. They were merely in rebellion. In Lincoln's own words, the unrest in the South was caused by certain combinations of individuals that had usurped rightful authority. And because their illegal actions make it, made it impossible for the United States to collect the tariffs and duties at the ports, they were to be closed to trade. Blockade. Now, based on that analysis, both Lincoln's Secretary of State, William Henry Seward, and Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, suggested that, well, maybe instead of calling this a blockade, you should perhaps just announce that those ports were closed. U.S. Navy warships and revenue cutters could be, could be stationed offshore to collect whatever fees and duties uh, the uh, ships were obligated to pay. But the problem with simply declaring the ports closed was that that would not authorize any U.S. warships to patrol out over the horizon or to stop ships that might or might not be inbound to those closed ports. So in the end, Lincoln decided he had to accept the term blockade and simply suffer whatever that might imply about the legal status of the Confederacy. Interestingly, though, instead of undercutting the Union war effort, that proved to be greatly advantageous uh, to Lincoln's strategy for a couple of reasons, unforeseen at the time. Because Britain used that declaration in April of 1861 as a justification for her own declaration of neutrality. Well, if there's a blockade in place, we're not going to get involved. And in that declaration of neutrality, Britain declared that neither side, not the North and certainly not the South, could use British ports to bring in its prizes to be adjudged and sold at auction for the purpose of prize money. That closed the Confederacy out from using British ports for its war against commerce. But we're not done yet with the legal ramifications of the blockade. You know, declaring a blockade, whatever that might mean, uh, was one thing. Making it stick 
was quite another. According to a document called the Declaration of Paris in 1856, a blockade was not binding on neutrals. You didn't have to obey it unless the declaring power maintained a squadron offshore large enough physically to stop any vessels trying to come in. That meant that somehow the Union had to establish a naval force off every one of the 189 Confederate harbors and river mouths and bays that could be used for trade along a 3,500-mile coast. If you measure it from Alexandria, Virginia, all the way down the double coast of Florida to Brownsville, Texas, that's a, a good long haul. And since the Navy, the U.S. Navy, at the time of Lincoln's declaration, consisted of exactly 42 ships, that seemed a pretty tall order. In fact, it provoked ridicule in most of Europe and certainly in the South. So the first task was a dramatic expansion of the size of the Navy. Readying the ships in ordinary, what today we'd probably call mothballs, those had been put up in storage, and bringing home those that were stationed overseas, and adding 23 new gunboats built in a crash program of 90-day construction, all gave the United States a total of about 100 warships, most of them steamers. But that's still only a fraction of what would be needed to make this blockade stick. Most of the rest, totaling over 500 eventually, came from converting merchant steamers into warships. Now, you could not do this today. You could not go out here to the Baltimore Harbor and get a container ship and put a shotgun on it and say, here we go, we got a warship now. But you could do that and during this transitional technological era of the 19th century. It was quicker, it was cheaper, it was easier than building new warships from scratch. And though converted merchant steamers packed less of an offensive punch than real, no kidding, warships, their job, remember, was to deter and deflect unarmed merchant ships. So they didn't have to have very many guns. Often two or three would be plenty. Maintenance of the blockade was tedious work, and most of the sailors in the Civil War spent most of their time doing exactly what you see here. This is from a sketchbook by a, a Union Navy doctor named Stedman, who served on one of those blockading ships. Uh, it was, as this drawing suggests, an assignment that called for constant vigilance, 24 hours a day, and few opportunities for heroism in the manner of say, great bayonet charges or cavalry attacks. Sailors on these blockading ships spent interminable days focused either on the horizon offshore or peering into the harbors to see if they could catch sight of a telltale uh, thread of dark smoke that suggested a ship was either in the offing trying to come in or inside the harbor preparing to try to get out. As this image suggests, often week after week or month after month would pass with no sign of either a blockade runner coming in or one going out, and time soon enough began to hang pretty heavy on the watchers. Stedman drew this sketch, by the way, as kind of a response to newspaper editorials that he found terribly annoying uh, that suggested the uh, sailors on the blockade simply weren't doing their job very efficiently. If you can't read it, the sarcastic 
uh, a label at the bottom of this drawing reads, the reprehensible want of vigilance in our blockading squadrons. See daily newspapers, 1862, 1863, etc. In other words, I know the papers say we're not trying very hard, but it's a hard job. And we work very hard at it. Night was the worst. Night was when most of the blockade runners tried to get in. Uh, here, for example, is another of get it to go of Stedman's sketches of a uh, blockade ship. I think this label says the blockade runner they did not catch. There were quite a few of those, by the way. Um, usually, in the middle of a moonless night, perhaps in a rainstorm or a squall. Uh, the ships would come in. They were low, as you can see here. Most of the masts cut down. They were steamers, so they had no sails to spread. They were running blacked out, so they were completely dark. Um, Union watchers were wary of firing into a friend, so they would perceive movement out there in a dark night. Remember, the blockade ships are also blacked out so that they can see and not be seen. So the officer of the deck might call for a flare, a signal to show, you know, our friend or foe signal, you know, a red light over green, for example. And if the required answer didn't come back, then a rocket might be shot up. And then all the men would come tumbling up from below decks, and they'd man the guns and cast loose the anchor, and off they'd go in a hot pursuit. Muzzle flashes might lit up the night, temporarily blinding everybody, as it did. Uh, some of the Union ships uh, would set out in pursuit. And then... Almost as suddenly as it began, it was over. And more often than not, with the blockade runner escaped, the one they did not catch, men angry about the missed opportunity, officers frustrated, and another critical newspaper editorial was sure to appear. But for all this effort and all this energy and all this frustration, the key question is, did this work? Was the blockade effective? Did it contribute to eventual Union victory in the Civil War. Well, most historians who address this issue have done so by appealing to statistics. You've all heard the old joke about liars and damn liars and statisticians. An effort to look at the statistics here is almost as likely to breed skepticism about the value of doing so as to resolve the question. And let me give you an example of that. Back in 1931, the Southern historian Frank Owsley estimated that ships successfully violated the blockade some 8,000 times. But in compiling that number, he counted every skiff and rowboat that went from town to town along the coast. A much better calculation that really tells us more was made by Stephen Wise, another Southern historian, in 1988, who concluded that in addition to these smaller and less efficient sailing ships and coastal craft, about 300 different steam-powered vessels sought to violate the blockade during the war. Those 300 steamers made an average of four successful trips. That is, in, out, in, out, they're done. That works out to a total of 1,300 attempts to violate the blockade, of which over 1,000 were successful. In other words, statistics prove that steam-powered blockade runners made it successfully through the blockade 77% of the time. So apparently the blockade was a sieve. But here's another statistic, and this one's also true. 
Of those 300 steamers, Union warships eventually captured 136 of them. And another 85 were destroyed, run into shore by pursuing vessels or lost at sea, for a total of 221. Thus, statistics prove that 73% of all steam-powered vessels that tried to run the blockade were destroyed or captured. Both of these statements are true. Three-quarters of all attempts to run the blockade were successful, and three-quarters of all the ships that tried it were destroyed or captured. Is the glass half empty or half full? The most important fact, however, is one that cannot be counted or measured easily. How many ships never tried to run the blockade in the first place because they were deterred by the presence of the blockading squadron? Well, we don't know exactly, of course. Um, but we can look at some other numbers. Between 1859 and 1860, the last 12 months of peace before the war broke out, take that number and compare it to the first 12 months of war in 1861 and 62, the number of vessels going in and out of southern ports declined by 93%. And that, I think, is pretty decisive. On the one hand, it's clear the Confederacy did manage to import a sufficient number of rifles and cannon, an adequate amount of powder and shot, and other essential materials of war to keep its armies supplied. It brought in 400,000 rifles, 3 million pounds of lead, and 2,250,000 pounds of saltpeter, the basic ingredient of gunpowder. Without doubt, these imports were crucial to the Confederate war effort. On the other hand, the cumulative effect of the overall reduction in the South's trade, the loss of its coastline, and eventually the occupation of its major seaports weakened the Confederate economy, impacted civilian morale, and effectively undermined the Confederate government and its war effort in all sorts of ways. If the blockade was never airtight, uh, it was constricting enough that the South was constantly gasping for economic breath. And that slow asphyxiation, combined with the reduction in the size of the logistic base from which Confederate armies could draw their supplies, so isolated Lee's army in Virginia that he had no choice but to surrender. Now, almost certainly the North would have won the Civil War even without the blockade. As long as the Northern population sustained Lincoln and his policy in the White House. But almost as certainly the blockade made the war shorter and probably therefore saved many thousands of lives. Now, if blockade is the principal strategy used by the North in the Naval War, the principal strategy used by the South in the Naval War was commerce raiding. Indeed, in virtually all 18th and 19th century wars, European as well as Western Hemisphere, the stronger naval power almost always tried to blockade its enemy, and the weaker naval power, knowing it couldn't confront that navy head-to-head -head or hull-to-hull, attacked its merchant commerce, a form of economic warfare called guerre de course by the French. Now, guerre de course had marked the principal effort of the American Revolution, of Americans in the War of 1812, of the French against the British in the Napoleonic Wars, 
But one big difference between those wars and this one is that Confederate commerce rating now depended on the new technology. As I noted at the outset, the advent of steam propulsion and the screw propeller made commerce raiders more dangerous, but it also made them more dependent on shore bases for supply. If you're a steamship, you've got to get coal somewhere. Much of the commerce raiding in the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812 had been conducted by something that was known as a privateer. You've probably heard the term. Here we are in Baltimore, one of the hearts of privateering in the War of 1812, the bicentennial of which we are observing at the moment. These were small, privately owned ships, hence the name, um, that were paid for by their owner. The government didn't put up a nickel for this. All the government did was give them a piece of paper called a letter of mark, which was quite literally a license to steal. Their job was to prey not on enemy warships, but on merchant commerce, and they got to keep whatever they took. It's an easy way of expressing it, but it's a form of legalized piracy. Now, Jefferson Davis issued a call for Confederate privateers even before Lincoln issued his blockade declaration. Here's one. You can see how small this is. Privateers, as a rule, are pretty tiny. Um, this one is a fore and aft rig, which is pretty common, and had exactly one gun. Of course, that's one more than your merchant targets are likely to have. It would also be packed with men, though I think in this slide you can really only see two, but ordinarily a privateer would carry quite a few because you wanted men on board as a prize crew for the ships that you captured. The problem with privateering in the Civil War is that the entire idea of privateering is that it's driven by the profit motive. People did it to make money. Since the ship owner provides the ship, pays the men, hires the officers, he expects a return on his investment, and the crew expected prize money. Without friendly ports where prizes could be condemned by a prize court judge and then sold, there's no way to make a profit. And as a result, Confederate privateering dried up in just a few months. The British denied their ports, and the French and Spanish immediately followed. And of course, the blockade along the east coast of the United States meant they couldn't go in there. There was no place to take their prizes. Not worth doing. That didn't mean the Confederates stopped using commerce rating. It simply meant that commerce rating now had to be conducted by commissioned warships of the Confederate Navy. Of course, the Confederacy had no Navy either. So they bought one. They went to England and purchased them. And the man who did it was this guy. I put this in mainly because I love these whiskers. This is James Dunwoody Bullock from Georgia. Uh, he was the... Confederate commissioner in England charged with buying ships that the Confederates then used to raid Union commerce. And if that sounds like England is stepping over the line of neutrality here, you're absolutely right. They sure were. So there was a lot of subterfuge and sleight of hand used to cover this up. By the way, just as an aside, James Dunwoody Bullock was also the uncle of Theodore Roosevelt, whatever that may be worth. Um, the most famous of the ships that Bullock bought was this one. This is the uh, CSS Alabama. 
It was obtained uh, in a, uh, one of those deals in Liverpool and sneaked out in the middle of the night, rearmed in the Azores Island, and then officered by that will-o'-the-wisp of the bounding main, Raphael Sims. Um, the crew called him Old Beeswax because of those uh, whiskers. Probably not to his face, though, I suspect. The Alabama, under Sims, captured 64 Union merchant ships in its lengthy career, and one warship, the unlucky USS Hatteras. But lacking friendly ports where he could take these prizes, the only thing he could do with them is burn them. Here we see a slide of the Alabama, and off to the right there, you can see the prize in the distance uh, flaming up quite nicely. Now that led to some problems with his crew. Though the Alabama's officers, like Semmes, were Confederates, the crew were all Europeans. They weren't Southerners. They'd never been to the South or even to the United States. They were Brits and Irishmen and Portuguese and Spaniards and Frenchmen and Danes and Africans. Semmes had promised them all that they would get paid prize money for every ship they burned. As soon as the war was over and the, after the Confederacy won, Congress would give them their prize money. But of course, that would only happen if the Confederacy won, which, as time passed, began to seem less and less certain. Along with several other vessels, notably the CSS Florida and the CSS Shenandoah, and more about the Shenandoah here in a few minutes, these rebel raiders caught and destroyed a total of 284 Union merchantmen. Ships valued at more than $25 million. Whoops. Plug in or find another power source. I didn't do it, did I? See, I'm one of those guys that wonders what the kids are doing when they're poking. I'm glad I didn't do that. <laughs> it's all right. We'll get there. Shall I jump quickly into the gunboat navy? We'll get this done in a minute. While he's doing that, let me let me ask the same question about commerce rating that I asked about the blockade. Did it work? Was it worth it? Was the investment that the Confederacy put into merchant raiding worth the investment? Well, I would have to argue that it did. The damage to Union commerce in those 284 prizes was enormous. That $25 million, which today would be a rounding error in the defense budget, that was real money in the middle of the 19th century. And there were secondary costs to the Union as well. Union shippers had to pay higher maritime insurance rates. Other uh, Union merchantmen reflagged their ships and made them French or Danish or whatever. British often, to avoid being targeted by Confederate commerce raiders. Moreover, the rampage by these commerce raiders created enormous political pressure on the government. Businesses wanted to know, what are you doing for me? How are you helping me? You know, are you sending out anybody to catch these guys? And so, of course, uh, the Secretary of the Navy had to put together, I suppose, what today would be called hunter-killer groups go out and try and track them down. And that dispersed more ships out over the ocean. So, in other words, these handful of commerce raiders had a disproportionate impact on the war at sea for a relatively modest investment. 
On the other hand, they did not bring the Lincoln administration to the negotiating table. They did not compel the Union Navy to weaken the blockade. They did not retard even a little bit the Union war effort. This is not to criticize the South for trying it. The best hope the South had was not to win the war, but to wear out the political will of the North to keep fighting. And one way they could do that was to attack its merchant commerce. That in the end it didn't work says as much about Lincoln's determination and the willingness of the northern public to sustain him as it does the strategy. Okay, now I'm going to get to the Western Rivers. Are you ready to do this now? All right, the third issue, the Western Rivers. Uh, this is a case where uh, navies on both sides played an important role, even a crucial role. And when I talk about the West in the Civil War, let me make sure everybody understands what I mean. I don't mean California. I don't mean Arizona. I don't even mean Texas. I mean that area between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River. Right? And here it is, bounded more or less on the north by the Ohio and by the Gulf of Mexico on the south, but Tennessee, Kentucky, Alabama, Mississippi. That's the West, as Civil War historians describe it. Now, from the beginning, Union planners had envisioned a move down the Mississippi River from the north and up from New Orleans from the south in order to divide the Confederacy, not quite in half. This had been part of Winfield Scott's so-called Anaconda Plan back in the beginning of the war. A crucial geographical fact that affected all the campaigning in the West was that while the rivers in the Eastern Theater, and if you can picture them in your mind's eye, the Potomac and the Rappahannock and so forth, they all flow, as you look at a map, horizontally from west to east. So to an invading force, they're barriers to the Union Army as it moves south. But here in the west, as you can see, the major rivers, the Tennessee and the Cumberland in the middle of the map, which flow from south to north, and the Mississippi, which flows from north to south, they all appear vertically on the map. They're not barriers. They're highways to an invading force. Now, in a Union campaign along these river lines necessarily involved both the Army and the Navy in what today we would call joint operations. And this proved very difficult to do in the Civil War because there was no existing protocol for joint operations in the 19th century. There was at that time no Secretary of Defense, no Pentagon, no nothing. There was a Secretary of War who presided over the Army and a Secretary of the Navy who presided over the Navy, and they both sat on the cabinet as co-equals, and they didn't like each other. So as a result, the ability of the Army and the Navy to work together on any of these western rivers depended entirely on the willingness of the commanders to cooperate. <clears throat> At first, it looked like the Army was going to be the senior partner in this, uh, the three first three wooden gunboats built on the Ohio River at Cincinnati by Navy Commander John Rogers in the spring of 1861 were technically under the Army's command, indeed under the rather dubious command of Major General John Charles Fremont, one of those political generals you hear a lot about. But as the river squadrons grew, it became clear that a shared command was more practical. As it was finally hammered out, the Army retained strategic control of the campaign, but Navy officers exercised tactical command of their ships. And as a result of this kind of ad hoc arrangement, 
where cooperation, not command unity, was the key, the outcome uh, depended on who was in charge. Rather quickly, the Norse industrial superiority allowed it to produce specially designed rivering warships that the Confederacy could not match. And I would advance this if I had my little trigger here. But if you can do that, man, there we go. Thank you very much. This is the USS Benton. Uh, it's named, interestingly enough, for John C. Fremont's father-in-law, Thomas Hart Benton. Uh, you can see how its casemate design and iron armor, had two inches of iron armor all the way around on all sides, and gave the crew a certain amount of protection, not necessarily against heavy caliber cannon, but from uh, certainly small arms fire. Not only were the men protected, but so were the uh, engine plant and the paddle wheel. You want to advance that for me again? You might just move over one seat there. You're going to be my new. Thank you very much. Here's, here's the design of the thing, and you can see in the lower drawing here how that iron armor worked its way all the way around to include not only the engine spaces and the guns, but even the paddle wheel, which is covered by that big iron box. And now that you've moved over, I'm going to get my weapon back. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. By contrast, the South could only jury-rig uh, some sort of ersatz warships. Uh, here's one. This is the CSS General Price, fairly typical Confederate river warship. Uh, it had been a commercial steamer before the war, and what the Confederates did was simply hammer some four-inch thick timbers all the way around it to make it, in the parlance of the day, a wood-clad. Now, if you're betting in this war, you know, bet on the ironclad, not the woodclad. They even had, by the way, just as an aside, uh, they, when they were low on not only iron but wood as well, they actually put cotton bales all the way around the side, which could absorb quite a bit of punishment, and had cotton-clad warships. So King Cotton had to be good for something for the South. Lacking the ability to produce a modern navy, the Confederates counted mostly on shore fortifications to deter uh, the Union warships. Um, let's go back to this map. Um, they erected a defense line called the Long Kentucky Line from, uh, and I'm going to move away from the microphone for a minute here, from island number 10 here in the Mississippi on the border between Kentucky and Tennessee uh, through Fort Henry on the Tennessee River and Fort Donaldson on the Cumberland River, all the way to Bowling Green, Kentucky, which is off the map to the right. That was their defensive line, and they counted on the forts more than they did their vessels to try to stop this Union onslaught. The first trial of that came at Fort Henry, which you can see in the middle of the map, the number five there, uh, where Brigadier General Ulysses S. Grant, not yet a household name, uh, cooperated with Navy Flag Officer Andrew Hull Foote uh, to break through a key linchpin in this defensive line. Uh, they took the fort under fire from Foote's ironclads, which you can see here shelling the fort in the distance, while Grant's soldiers moved around to attack from the overland side. Uh, in this gun duel, Foote's uh, ironclads absolutely overwhelmed the fort. Here's the Union perspective on this, and here's the Confederate perspective on this. I'd rather be on the Union side myself. Uh, and Fort Henry actually capitulated before Grant's soldiers could even get there. So here's, here's the uh, gunboats asserting their dominance 
over shore fortifications. It turned out to be quite an important move because we go back to the map. If you'll notice, this railroad line here from Memphis runs all the way to Bowling Green, uh, crosses the river just below, or above, since the river runs northward, Fort Henry. Once Fort Henry was captured, Union gunboats could proceed down the river and burn this bridge, which cut off that army from this army, and the whole Confederate force had to retreat about 300 miles. So for one fort, the Union captured a state, in effect. If the Navy won the honors at Fort Henry, it was the Army that uh, did so at where number six is there, Fort Donelson, on the Cumberland River. Uh, here, Foote's gunboats proved far less formidable, mainly because Fort Donelson was on higher ground and could shoot down onto the river. Uh, this time it was Grant's army that surrounded the fort from the landward side and compelled its surrender. And I, there is Grant, as you can see. And if you'll see number eight, I love the way this map does this, and I can make fun of it because I drew it. Um, that's the Navy turning around and going back. You know, <laughs> yipes! Okay. The best example, though, of Army-Navy cooperation in this river campaign came at a place called Island Number 10 on the Mississippi River. This island is so named, it's just the 10th island in numbered sequence from the point where the Ohio and the Mississippi come together, and this happens to be the 10th one. It sat right at the, it does, it's not there anymore, by the way, the river's moved, but at the time it sat right between the border of Kentucky and Tennessee. And it was difficult to approach, back to the map, because of the swampy ground here off to the side, so that the Union, instead of dropping off its soldiers, they could not get to the fort from the landward side. This goes around 100 miles. Now, you can't get there from here. They had to get it from this direction. And in order to do that, it was necessary to run past the fort, pick up the Union Army here in New Madrid, bring it down the river, land it on the coast, and attack it from the rear. This operation would have been impossible for either the Navy or the Army to do by itself, but working together, they made it look pretty easy. This is pretty much the guy who was uh, responsible for it. This rather piratical-looking fellow is uh, uh, Commander Henry Walk. Um, I love the fact, by the way, just as an aside, that the Union naval commanders in this campaign are named Foot and Walk. <laughs> be that as it may. He's the guy that ran his ship past the batteries and escorted them across the river. So it's his willingness to take on that responsibility that made it possible. The same week he did that, by the way, 500 miles to the south as the river flows, this man, David Glasgow Farragut, the, destined to be the Ulysses Grant of the Naval War, if you would, uh, ran his ocean-going ships from the Gulf of Mexico past the forts on the Mississippi guarding New Orleans to seize the South's largest city. Now, this is particularly significant for a couple of reasons. One is the fortifications protecting New Orleans were not like those at Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson. Those were... Uh, log and dirt forts thrown up at the beginning of the war uh, in a hurry. The forts protecting New Orleans were big masonry forts built by the Army Corps of Engineers over about a two-year period. 
don't know what kind of map I have. There they are. There's one on the left, Fort Jackson, and then on the upper right, Fort St. Philip. These are substantial forts. Between them, they had 128 heavy guns. No one was quite sure if wooden-hulled, ocean-going warships could steam past them unscathed. They were built, in fact, to make that impossible. But, as you can see in the slide here, uh, Farragut decided to try it. He broke through that barricade across the river, ran past the forts, and then steamed up to New Orleans and just sat there with his guns pointing at the city and said, give up. And they did. There was a book written in the 1940s by a fellow whose name I can't remember, but it was called The Night the War Was Lost. And what he meant by that was that the South, once it was clear that they had lost New Orleans, the outlet from the Mississippi, once it was evident that the Union's warships could overwhelm the South's defensive forces, it, all the rest was a matter of time. Now, that may be a bit of an extreme statement. The war still had three years to run. But it does suggest how important this was. With the command of the lower Mississippi, Farragut could steam all the way up past Baton Rouge to Vicksburg, but, of course, he could not capture Vicksburg itself without an army. Vicksburg probably deserves its own speech, and I won't go into great detail here, but the key point is that as at Island Number 10, the key to success was the cooperation of the army and the navy. Once again, the Union Navy agreed to run past Vicksburg escort the army across the river so that it could come around in that sweeping movement out to the right and come in behind Vicksburg on the landward side. Vicksburg fell after a 47-day siege on the 4th of July of 1863, and for a hundred years, Mississippi never celebrated the 4th of July as Independence Day. Let me say something, too, about the Union effort to seize the major southern cities along the Gulf and Atlantic coasts. By 1864, after three years of war, there were only four important seaports left open to the Confederacy. I'll go back to this map here. Galveston, Texas, which actually changed hands twice on the Gulf Coast, Mobile, Alabama, Charleston, South Carolina, and Wilmington, North Carolina. Mobile was cut off from the sea in 1864 thanks to David Glasgow Farragut's most famous uh, run past the rebel forts at Mobile Bay. Here's a painting of that. This is the one where his lead ship, as you can see there, tilting over to its side, hit a mine. And as it was going down, others in his squadron were worried that there were torpedoes in the water ahead, to which Farragut responded, you bet he did. Of course, there's that old joke that we don't know how he said this. I mean, it's always possible he said something like, Damn, the torpedoes! <laughs> the campaign for Charleston was a bit longer, featured a failed attack by Samuel Francis DuPont on Fort Sumter in April of 1863. Here's one of the cases where the forts did prove stronger than the ironclads. Also marked by that heroic charge by the 54th Massachusetts against Fort Wagner, Battery Wagner, uh, highlighted in the film Glory. You can see that at the number six there on the offshore island. Um, but Charleston, in fact, did not fall to this assault, not for two years, and only when outflanked by William T. Sherman's 
march northward after the march to the sea. Wilmington, North Carolina, the last of them, that too was a pretty tough nut. The Union had to assemble a couple of hundred ships in an assault on uh, Fort Fisher, which protected Wilmington, North Carolina, and it finally capitulated only in February of 1865. So finally, and there's this joke about saying finally, you've heard me do it because you used it. You know, my, my, I got this uh, bit uh, from my friend uh, who teaches at Goucher College, um, Gene Baker, who told me, so now look, when you're giving a speech, you always have to say finally, because it gives people hope. So here it is. Finally, I want to say just a word about the CSS Shenandoah, one of the rebel commerce raiders I mentioned earlier. Secretary of the Navy for the Confederacy, Stephen Mallory, <clears throat> assigned the Shenandoah to patrol the northern Pacific Ocean, where the Shenandoah attacked the Union whaling fleet. Here's a drawing of it burning several of its prizes. Uh, just as the first shots at Fort Sumter marked the beginning of the war, the voyage of the Shenandoah kind of marks its end. While uh, the commander of the Shenandoah, James Waddell, was cruising southward towards San Francisco in August of 1865. Now, those of you who know your history know the war ended in April, but this is August of 1865. With the idea of entering uh, San Francisco Harbor and holding it for ransom, by the way, that was his plan, he ran into a British ship that had some newspapers that said, oh, by the way, the war is over. Uh-oh. That means most of what he'd done up here in the North Pacific, he had done after the war was over. Now, the legal status of commerce raiders on a country that was not recognized by the Union was a little bit dicey anyway, but to do so after the war was over made it even more so. And Waddell wondered, well, what do I do now? Talked it over with his officers and decided he would make his way all the way back to where he started in Liverpool, England. And so he rounded uh, Cape Horn and made his way through the South Atlantic and the North Atlantic all the way back to Liverpool without sighting another ship. And he hauled down his flag on November 6th of 1865. There was talk about his being arrested, but in the end he and his crew were simply released and the war at long last came to an end. Now if I haven't worn you out, I hope some of you will have some questions for me. That should be fun. Thank you. Okay, 52 minutes, not too bad. Yes, sir. Just one question, just a little comment. In okay. Really money, uh, number one, um, I understand that the first oil well in Pennsylvania was drilled, they called it rock oil, because of the depredations against the uh, whaling fleet and the price of whale oil was going up. There is a connection there, yeah. The first well at Titusville was drilled in part to replace yeah. scarce whale oil, more expensive whale oil. Yeah. I worked for the Department of Defense, and we have a vehicle called Termination for Convenience, up in mm -hmm. and where it convenience the government, we can terminate a contract, and we negotiate whatever cost you incur up to that point. And evidently that began with the man making the gunboats, where he was mad for this, the war ended, the government said, well, sorry, don't need any more gunboats. I have to, that's a very good point, and I have to tell you, no contractor today would accept any of the contracts that were let by the government during the Civil War. The, the most a typical one was the one that was given to uh, uh, Eric, John Erickson, who designed the and built the Monitor. 
They told them, all right, we'll pay you $275,000 for this. No, none of this cost plus stuff. We'll give you this amount of money. That's it. But you have to have it ready for combat in 100 days. And here's the deal. If it loses, you get nothing. <laughs> you imagine somebody saying, oh, sure. If the plane's shot down, uh, it's on me. Not going to happen. So, yeah, James Eads, who designed the river contract, worked on pretty much the same basis. It, it, nobody today would accept those deals. You're absolutely right. And Money. Yeah, exactly right. Good, thank you. Anybody else? Yeah. What role did the uh, other uh, seagoing services in the United States play, especially the revenue cutters? Well, the revenue cutters, of course, belong to the Treasury Department, not Homeland Security as they are today. And they were used on the blockade as well. Uh, one of them, the Harriet Lame, was actually sent down for the initial blockade of Charleston. It was present when the first shot was fired off the coast. Uh, and they were pretty much mingled in with. Uh, blockade vessels. They were also used for carrying the mail back and forth between blockading squadrons and home ports. Lincoln used revenue cutters when he went from Washington, D.C. down to visit the Army at Hampton Roads and elsewhere. Uh, so they had a variety of purposes. The other seagoing service, the Marine Corps, I often get the question, well, what about the Marines in the Civil War? Did they take the beach and storm the hill and none of that, I'm afraid. Uh, the Marines in the 19th century were essentially uh, a constabulary force. Their job was to keep the sailors from killing each other uh, when they got drunk. That was fundamentally their job. And they did occasionally go ashore with shore parties, but that was not their primary function. They were the cops on the ships, and that was pretty much what they did. Yeah, against the wall. Yeah, the question was, isn't it amazing, given the advantages, industrial manpower and others, that the North had, uh, isn't it amazing the South lasted four years? Yes and no. Uh, I mean, the one hand, what I often did with my students was lay out all those tangible areas in which the North had a huge advantage in population, uh, industrial production, railroad mileage, the existence of a Navy. You can make a long list. And I said, but what was the North's mission? It was to invade and occupy 750,000 square miles of hostile territory and hold it, how long? Forever. Now, what was the South's objective in this war? Not lose. They already had what they wanted. You know, they said, we want to be independent and separate and keep our special institution, our labor system. And we've got that now. You have to come take it from us. So when you look at the, you know, what was laid upon the Union forces, what they had to accomplish, the bar is so much higher that those tangible differences pretty much level out. Anybody else? Sir? There's been a lot written on efforts over the years of the war to keep France and England at bay uh, from the Confederates. Was there a maritime aspect to this other than what you mentioned? Yeah, the question concerned uh, the effort by the Confederacy to entice, if that's the right word, Britain and France to come into the war as their savior, or at least to offer what they call their good offices to adjudicate the outcome. Let's all get together at a table and talk about it. Of course, once you begin doing that, you know, the game's up. Um, and was there a maritime aspect of it? Well, absolutely there was, uh, because the existence of a blockade um, and the British, who wanted to continue to trade with both sides, right, found that somewhat awkward. Uh, they also believed it would be useful to them economically if the United States 
emerging in the 19th century as their principal trade rival, was broken in half. So from a geopolitical point of view, that looked like, you know, maybe not a bad thing. But there's no getting past the slavery problem. The Confederacy was fighting to sustain a labor system that the, the British people just abhorred, and they just couldn't get past that. Uh, then finally, I mentioned the Alabama, the Shenandoah, the Florida, and others, vessels that were built in British yards specifically to be commerce raiders for the Confederacy. And at the end of the war, the Union, uh, the United States, not the Union anymore, well, still the Union, sued in international court at The Hague for uh, all the cost of the war after 1863. The Union argument was, well, you know, that prolonged the war, those commerce raiders, and, and, but for the British, you know, it, it costs us billions. We, be, we want them to pay for that. Well, no. But the court did say all the ships are actually destroyed. Those, you know, $15 million worth, essentially, of commerce destroyed by ships built in British yards. The British had to pay for that. And they did. And the, the Alabama decision, handed down in 1873, set a precedent for what a neutral was allowed and not allowed to do. Um, one last thing, and I'm going to stop after this, and we can just chat uh, informally. Oh, wait, is there one more question? Does he have? Yeah, I'll, I'll take this question, and I'll come back. But if you're interested in this subject, a very good book that's out, Amanda Foreman wrote a book called A World on Fire that came out last year. It's a big doorstop of it, but about 1,100 pages. But it's nicely done, and really touches on all the parameters of that uh, transatlantic relationship between the British and the Confederacy and the Union and the Civil War. Kind of well done. Last question. Yeah, the question concerns a number of Union naval officers who left, resigned their commissions to go south and fight for the Confederacy. There were a handful, but interestingly, only a handful. And, and I'll make this comparison, and you'll love this especially. Uh, if you look at Army officers, uh, Almost to a man, southern-born U.S. Army officers resigned their commissions and went south and fought for the Confederacy. There's a few exceptions. Uh, the Rock of Chickamauga, uh, uh, George Henry Thomas, uh, was Virginia-born and stayed loyal to the Union. And there were a handful of others. But it's about 95% of southern-born Army officers went south and fought for the Confederacy. In the United States Navy, fewer than half of southern-born Navy officers went south to fight for the Confederacy. Now, why is this? Inherent patriotism among U.S. naval officers that doesn't exist in the Army. No? Is that right? Is that the correct interpretation? What? An easy explanation is, you know, there's no job for me down there. Those who did resign mostly ended up being artillery officers in the Army. But there were so few commands available that most of them stayed loyal to the United States, including, by the way, David Glasgow Farragut who had been born in Tennessee, raised in Louisiana, and lived in Virginia, and yet the day that Virginia seceded, moved to New York and uh, sided with uh, the United States. So uh, very few, actually, relatively few compared to the Army. All right, thank you very much, everybody. It's a lot of fun.